Today, we celebrate, as I mentioned before, the most historic event that happened, the most amazing event that happened in history. It is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of you may actually wonder, why is this such a big deal? Some of you already know why this is a big deal. This is the turning point in history that transformed everything. Prior to this moment, there was a small band of perhaps backwater, somewhat educated, some not so educated group of people in a far off distant country that were following some sort of radical teacher and was making some headway. But after this event, after the resurrection, everything changed, everything transformed. And what they believed and how they lived and how they acted after this event, the the event that we celebrate on this particular day, everything was different. Everything was transformed. Now, some of what was transformed is our understanding of ourselves. For example, it is understood within Christianity that the resurrection means that now my sins are forgiven, that I am now made clean, that I get a redo, that my life is now beginning over again. All of those things are absolutely true. Something happens to you individually and personally as a result of this event. Because Jesus rose from the grave, that means access to life. And to life that, is, life that you're supposed to have is now made accessible to you. And you can have this. And that is definitely what this story is all about. The problem, however, for those of you who have been around Spark, is that that's not the only story. There's a much bigger story that's being told here. And we never, ever want to discount for those of you who are so thankful for this day because something has happened to you individually. Something has been transformed in your life, and your life is made different as a result of this celebration and this event. But the analogy that I like to use, and I hope it works for you, is that we are looking at a huge HD, high-definition television screen, and what the biblical writers are doing is they're painting a huge picture. Your story, how God has transformed you, or how your life has been made new, is one of the pixels in that screen. And that pixel is needed, because if you bought a brand new TV and there was a pixel out, what are you going to do? You're returning that thing. It It is not the way it's supposed to be, and hopefully it's under some sort of manufacturer's warranty. So the pixel is important, but the problem that many of us have with this is the pixel becomes then the only thing we see. And your pixel, look, our story is an 8K Samsung wall of an image of what this story is and represents. And so what I'd like to do today, if you will indulge me, is to go all the way back to the very beginning to bring in a much bigger picture and context for what this resurrection story means. And I'm going to state boldly, I'm going to assert and propose to each and every one of us that to really understand resurrection, you have to understand creation. So in order to understand what's really going on in this event, you have to understand the very first verse of the book, which is, everybody say it, in the beginning. So for the next 12 hours, we're just going to start with Genesis 1. Just kidding. For the next four minutes, I would like for you to just engage with this story as to what actually happened in the beginning. And you can't just understand it by reading the story. You have to feel it. You have to enter into the story. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth... 
The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face or the surface of the waters. And all of this creation story, all the language that is used, is to describe that what happened at the very beginning, what these Genesis writers are writing about, is not something to say, we just want to say that God created and we are going to argue with anybody else who has a theory about the beginning of the universe. No. These biblical writers were saying something much bigger, much deeper, much more profound. Water is always a symbol of chaos. It's always a symbol of this world that is not supposed to be. Destruction, disorder, things not the way it's supposed to be. No purpose, no meaning, no form. But the Spirit hovers over the waters. And what this story talks about is a transferring of taking these elements, such as water and air and clouds and dirt and soil, and putting all of these pieces in place where they're supposed to be. The waters are supposed to be collected into seas. The land is supposed to be collected into land. The sky is supposed to be holding up the waters that are above. And all of this is so that life can emerge on the scene. So that out of everything being put in order in the way that it's supposed to be, there can be new life, beauty, majesty, Wonder, a sense of aliveness, a sense of purpose and meaning and direction, a sense that everything has beauty and direction, and I get to be a part of that, culminating ultimately in the creation of all of us. It is often argued that this story that we have in Genesis 1 is to describe and to declare and to argue that God created this world. But what we often miss is how God created and what creation actually even means. The world was desolate, dark, watery chaos, no life, uninhabitable, intolerant, torturous, no life. And when God speaks and when God orders and when God places all of that where the elements are supposed to be, life is able to emerge out of that chaos and we get a beautiful universe. It's a good story, isn't it? It's a really good story. Next time read Genesis, throw on that music. It'll, <laughs> it'll help tremendously. Now, there's a couple of things that we take away from this story. The first is that God is an artist and a craftsman. Again, it's not an argument to say that God was there at the very beginning. It's describing a character of the divine. And if you've ever had an inkling about some sort of power above you or some sort of sense that there's something more to this world, the question is always, what is that more? And this Genesis story is declaring very, very poignantly and directly that this God is an artist and a craftsman. Now, we might use the phrase artist, uh, some, we might even use the phrase engineer, somebody who takes disparate parts and put them, puts them together in order. That would be our modern-day metaphor. But the ancient metaphor for that is somebody who is a gardener. Because the Garden of Eden becomes the ultimate image and picture for what this universe looks like when it is ordered, when it is purposeful, when it is everything that it is supposed to be, that it's designed to be. So the ultimate image and metaphor then for who God is, who this divinity is. Who is this thing? What is this thing that has created this universe? A gardener. 
and places us in this garden. A garden is a place, by the way, where plants grow because they are healthy, where trees provide shade because they are rooted, where people flourish because there's an abundance of produce, there's abundance of food. So the garden becomes this image, becomes this picture. The second thing that we realize is that God is good. God is actually not good. God is very good. God is not just good. God is very good. And this entire universe that we have been placed in is good. Now, the creation story, that is a very brief summary. Again, we probably need the next 12 hours or the rest of your life to read over Genesis 1 and 2 to really get all the nuances and the flavors and the depth of what these writers are talking about. But what I'd like to emphasize today is that while we describe and declare that God is good, that God is a gardener, that this world is good and very, very good, the creation story, what it means to be a creator, what creation itself actually means, isn't that we now exist, which is oftentimes how it's discussed. Creation is the thing that we all inhabit. We are the creation. The physical plants and animals are the creation. The dirt, the sky, the moon, the sun, the stars, that's the creation. But a careful reading of this story would yield possibly a different interpretation, which is creation isn't actually the thing. Creation isn't actually the sun, moon, stars. Creation actually isn't the planet. Creation actually isn't the animals and the fish of the sea and you and me. Creation is what happens to the things of this world when they are in chaos. Creation is the image or the word or the picture that we think of when there's darkness. And and chaos becomes this huge metaphor, huge image and symbol for when things are not supposed to be the way they are. And darkness becomes one of those images. And then, of course, the ultimate metaphor, the ultimate metaphor for life, fascinatingly enough, not being what it's supposed to be is death. In fact, for those of you who know your story, in the Genesis account, when God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, what's going to happen? Death, yeah, right, our English says, you will die. There's a double emphasis in the Hebrew. Death, you will die. Now, did they actually die? This is the big argument about, like, what is the writers doing? If you understand that they're taking huge themes and using them as metaphors and images for the world in which God does not intend, then death becomes the ultimate image and picture for what he doesn't intend. And when you eat from that, when you disobey, when you do not follow these commands, these teachings, this way of living, death, you will die. And that becomes the image and picture of life as it's not supposed to be. Creation, therefore, is not that we exist, the physical thing that is that there is a world, that there are planets, that there are stars. Creation then, in this narrative, is a movement from. It starts off with creation. In fact, if you read your story carefully, God, when he was creating, and the earth was formless and empty. The entire narrative starts off with something that wasn't right. Something that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. We have a, sometimes in Christian circles, we have this argument to say that God created out of nothing. It's to declare God's omnipotence, his power, his sovereignty, his his divine might. 
But the Genesis story seems to offer a different picture. Not that God created out of nothing, ex nihilo in the Latin if you prefer. God actually creates from something that already existed. Chaos becomes order and peace and purpose and meaning, which means that all these rest of the metaphors, darkness becomes light, which is why the first thing that God creates is light on the first day. And there's a whole bunch of movements within that framework. But then ultimately, what happens then in the creation story? Death becomes life. You want to talk about creation? What does creation mean? What does it mean to be created? It doesn't mean that we don't exist and all of a sudden we exist. What it means is our lives were in utter chaos. Our lives were in darkness. Our lives experienced death. And God spoke into that utter chaos, the deep, the darkness, the chaos of the waters, and brought out of it life, light, peace, joy, direction, purpose, meaning, connection, community. That, my friends, is what creation is. Now, part of what you have to understand about this narrative is that that way of understanding the created order that what God was doing was moving things, phase-shifting things, transforming things, not creating out of nothing, but moving them into a whole new type of reality, a reality from chaos to a reality of order and peace and goodness. That way of thinking was deeply embedded into the minds of the ancient people. And they thought about this creation story in their particular context, over and over and over again. You cannot read anywhere past Genesis and not run into Genesis again and again and again. They are constantly referring back to this story because this story becomes the grounding framework for what it means to live fully in this world. These are, oh my goodness, there are thousands of examples. Here's just a couple to whet your appetite. The very beginning of the story of Genesis starts off with God saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then you go through all sorts of chaos. Abraham, chaos. Isaac, chaos. Jacob, chaos. Joseph in Egypt, chaos. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stories of people messing up and God redeeming. And at the very end of the story, there's a story about Joseph and his brothers. And what symbolizes chaos more than a family that's supposed to be bonded in brotherly love, in agape love, in familial love, and yet... They are contentious with one another. They do not get along. They hate one another so much so that they are taking the brother whom they are supposed to love and they're casting him away. At the end of the story, Joseph and his brothers are reconciled. They're brought back together. And Joseph says at the very end, while he is second in command in Egypt, he says this amazing phrase, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The exact same word that is used in Genesis 1. The entire story is now being woven together. Even though you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. In other words, creation is happening again, even in the Joseph story. You created chaos. You created dysfunction and disorder. You created hate. You created murder. God creates life and goodness out of that. You can't read the Exodus story without running into themes about the Genesis story and the creation story again. Water is there. There's a rebirthing. There's a whole new life that is happening. They are sent out into the desert to wander, and then they are to build a tabernacle 
out in the middle of the desert to symbolize God's presence. And if you read carefully all the design that's on the tabernacle, they are elements coming from the Genesis story. Sun, moon, stars, things that are supposed to order and cause this universe to be exactly the way that they are. So every time you go to the temple, temple to the tabernacle to worship, you're reminded of the created order. You're reminded of God placing this all into place. Proverbs 8 is a beautiful passage about wisdom. And you want to think about wisdoms like all, all taking knowledge and utilizing it in a very clever way or a very profound way to see all the intricacies of humanity and, and human life and behavior and all that stuff. Proverbs 8 talks about wisdom as being there before the creation of the world. In fact, wisdom was the one that did do the creating. So even the Proverbs are leaning on this creation story. The Psalms are leaning on this story all the time where the entire created order the animals themselves, the trees themselves, the dirt, the rocks, everything in this created order is crying out to glorify God. They too, when you sing psalms and hymns and praise, you're also pulling in the creation story. The prophets are constantly referring about going back to Eden, going back to the garden, or reestablishing Eden in their new land. And then, of course, at the very end of the story, for those of you who've read all the way to the end, Revelation takes all of the images of Genesis and puts them right there at the end and says... Tree of life, river, nations, it's all coming back together again. And throughout our entire story, there are images and pictures and metaphors of this creative idea, this creative theme, whether it's waters, days, if you count number of days, if you count festivals, because the sun, moon, and stars in Genesis chapter 1 are there to mark the festivals for when you're supposed to celebrate. We're in a season of Passover right now. That comes from Genesis chapter 1. Whenever you see signs... All of the sun going around, well, back then, that was the cosmology, but the sun creating the days and the nights were signs to mark the seasons and the times. Anytime you see the phrase life, wisdom, etc., all of this is phraseology to refer back to the created order, back to creation. And one of the most poignant examples that's going to be relevant for us is the number seven. Why? Because how many days of creation were there? There were, how many times did God say it is good? And on the seventh time that God said it is good, he said it is very good. The first verse of Genesis has seven words. Fascinating, those seven words have 28 letters, four times seven. The second verse has 14 words, which is two times seven, which means verse one and three have 21 words, which is three times seven. The number of times heaven is mentioned in Genesis one is seven. There are seven days of creation. This goes on and on and on. These, <laughs> these authors know what they're doing and they're pulling in these huge themes. Why did I spend all that time in Genesis when we're talking about Easter for crying out loud? Can we advance the story? Yes. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But you have to get into that mindset to understand why was this event, the resurrection, so powerful and so transformative? The Gospel of John uses the number seven several times in a variety of ways throughout his telling of the Jesus story. Uh, for example, there are seven I am statements. I some of you are familiar with some of these phrases. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. What you may not have noticed is that there's seven of them. Very specifically designed to say that the life and the message and the image and the picture of Jesus is recreating all of the themes of Genesis creation in him. He is embodying that very thing. One of the most prominent images in the Gospel of John around the person of Jesus and why the life of Jesus read through these Gospels is so powerful to them and should be to us 
is that there are signs. If you read John carefully, there are no miracles in John. No miracles are mentioned. The word miracle does not show up because for John, it doesn't matter if it's a miracle or not. What matters is that there is a sign. Does anybody want to take a guess? What was the first, what we would call miracle, that John would call sign that happens in the Gospel of John? Does anybody want to remember? Turn, of course, your favorite one, because what, what better to turn chaos water into joyful wine? I mean, this is the celebration for all of us, right? Now, if you read this story carefully, you will notice that John is very articulate in saying that it was the third day on which he creates, on which he performs this particular sign. Why three? Genesis day one, God says it is good. Day two, God does not say it is good. Day two does not get a good. Day three, to make up for the loss of day two, God says it is good twice. The third day in Genesis is doubly blessed, doubly good. In fact, weddings to this day in Israel are held on Tuesday because the third day is blessed. When was the wedding at Cana in which Jesus turned water into wine? On the third day. And it's water, always a symbol of chaos, turning into joy. The second sign is a royal official's son who was sick and was healed. The third sign is the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. There's this whole story about him getting back into the circulation so that he could also experience that new life. Uh, the fourth sign is that there's the feeding of the 5,000. By the way, how many loaves and fishes were there? all over the place. (laughs) Sign number five, Jesus walks on the water. Sign number six, he heals a man that was born blind. And sign number seven, the ultimate, the pinnacle, the absolute apex of this entire ministry is raising somebody from the dead. Chaos to order and peace and purpose. Darkness, literally darkness to light, to sight, and literally death to life. Everything about the creation story is happening in the person of Jesus. You cannot understand why these people understood the ministry of Jesus as God breaking into this universe in a way that has only been done maybe perhaps once before in the Genesis narrative. Everything that we know about creation, everything that we know about this God, this goodness, this gardener is happening now in the life of Jesus. In fact, the gospel of John starts off with the phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But I lied to you. There's not seven signs. Anybody want to guess what number comes after seven? There's eight. And this is perplexing. Why is there an eighth sign in John? Didn't we just establish that what Jesus is doing in his life is recreating the Genesis theme and idea of taking darkness and bringing light and chaos to bring in order? Of course. So what is this eighth sign? Does anybody want to venture a guess? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter because he worked out and Peter didn't, and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings there, lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. Then he saw the linens right lying there, the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the, uh, with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who reached the tomb first, because he was fit and he worked out, also went in and he believed. For as yet, they did not understand that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples returned to their homes. The resurrection, my friends, is the eighth sign because what some, what most scholars are going to tell you, and this is really brilliant and beautiful and kind of mind-blowing, is what is the resurrection but day one? It's an entire creation starting all over again. The fullness of who Jesus is is completing the creation story of chaos to order and darkness to light and death to life. And the resurrection inaugurates at that moment and at that time a whole new created order. A whole new creation is happening in and through the life of Jesus, in and through the followers of Jesus, in and through the movement of Jesus, in and through our obedience, our faithfulness as a church to the way of Jesus, we are participating in the new creation that started on day one in his resurrection. And if you don't believe me, what John says next is amazing. You've missed it. Trust me, you've missed it. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus. She saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing he was the gardener? Come on, that's amazing! Are you kidding me? Like, we skip over that. uh, She just thought he was the gardener. Like, some sort of minor detail. No, it's the turning point in the entire story. Supposing that he was the gardener? Supposing that Jesus was the one, and she didn't even quite know it. She didn't even quite realize it. Here is the one that I've known my entire life from the very beginning of the story who transformed this chaos and this death and this darkness and this dysfunction into life, meaningful life, purposeful life, connected life, beautiful relationships, mystery, wonder, awe, abundance, flourishing, That God that I know that did that way back when in Genesis is standing now right before me, inaugurating, starting, and doing it all over again. So if you really want to understand the fullness of this story, if you really want to understand what's going on, you will read it this way. In the beginning was the Word, (laughs) and the Word was God. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the story goes on. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. It's the entire story that's being told all over again. 
And that person that became the flesh also had to enter into dark times, into oppressive regimes, unknown mystery, having to hide from the threat of an oppressive king, surrounded by death all around him. Because when Jesus is born, what does Herod do but kill all of the babies? He's dedicated at the temple, but very soon after that, he's got to leave and enter into Egypt, another image and picture of death and corruption and chaos. So he has to enter into that world. We talked about before how water is the symbol of chaos in the Genesis story. But what does Jesus do in the John story? What does Jesus do in his life? He walks upon it. The fifth sign, the sign that a whole new thing is happening, that the waters of chaos do not have control. They are not the ones in charge. This person of Jesus is in charge. He then heals the man who was born blind, literally bringing darkness into light. The sixth sign. We're starting to build. We're starting to recognize the drama that is happening here. And with his, all of these signs, all of these miracles that we would call them, but all these signs, there's a sense that the entire world is now being recreated. Those who have been marginalized are brought into the fold. Those who are sick will become healed. Those who are dead will become raised. And then, of course, this culminates in the final and seventh sign of the Gospel of John, which is the raising of Lazarus, literally bringing death to life. The seventh sign. Rome doesn't like it, so they try to crucify this guy. But what they don't realize is that you can't keep a good man down. And that Jesus rises from the dead, overcomes every single one of those ailments. Death, sickness, corruption, chaos, dysfunction, all of that. And here we go again. The rising of Jesus out of the tomb, the resurrection on this day that we celebrate and commemorate, is to say... We know there's chaos. We know there's death. We know there's darkness. We know there's dysfunction. We know that life does not meet up to the standards. But in this, a whole new creation is starting. Welcome, my friends, to day one of creation. There's this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You want to know why this story is so important, why passages like this have such meaning? Is the ancient writers, the ancient authors of this story, our ancestors were pulling in huge themes, huge ideas. This is not just an event. It's cosmic. We cannot overstate how important this event is to our lives, to our faith. And I would argue, I would argue to the world... Because what does this world need except some sort of creation, some sort of agents of creation to bring out of chaos a new kind of life? What does this world need except for somebody somewhere to be agents of a new creation, to speak into dark places where people do not care about truth and they do not care about life and they do not care about justice and mercy and compassion and they need an agent of a brand new creation to create light. And what does this world need except new ways 
of engaging and thinking and feeling and being redeemed. When we experience death, the most tragic image and symbol and picture metaphor and feeling and experience that we all unfortunately have to face. What does this world need anything more than people who are a new creation who will speak into that death and lovingly, caringly, humbly, beautifully, profoundly speak out of that death a whole new life. We're here because we celebrate day one. And as far as we know from the rest of the story, day one is still happening. And you and I are here to celebrate Easter, to celebrate the resurrection, because we are living in, once again, day one. And this is why this day and this event and this celebration is so critical and important. It frames everything about who we are and everything about what this world needs and everything about who we can be and how we can hope and how we can love. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. God spoke into your life when there was chaos and darkness and death and corruption and dysfunction and created a whole new life. And that is what we celebrate today. We do not ignore that darkness and chaos still happen. But creation isn't about the non-existence of those things. Creation is about the movement. Creation in the story has always been about the transformation of those things. And that's been our commission and our calling. I'm going to encourage you as Junior and the team lead us in a song. We take communion every single week to commemorate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we do when we take these elements and these metaphors and these symbols to us. We are literally ingesting symbolically the body and the blood so that we become and we are reminded that we are agents of this new creation. So as we sing, I'm going to encourage you. There are two stations. There's one here in the middle and there's one over here off to the side to approach the table, take the bread and dip it into the juice and then partake. And especially on this day to be reminded that you are being resurrected again, that you are living in day one. And the gardener is actively at work in you and in your life. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So my friends, the body and the blood of Christ, this beautiful symbol of this new creation for us and for the world is prepared for you.